years. A lot of people kind of either don't know or kind of hear, oh, you went to conversion therapy. Was that hard? And I'm like, yeah. Like, I don't even, I don't even know how to tell you what was going on in my mind at that time. I was so, I was so dissociated from my experiences. This is about giving people choices. If they want this, it should be available to them. Even if a num- the vast majority of medical associations say that actually this form of, of, of alleged counseling or alleged therapy is actually can be harmful to kids, there's a task force of the American Psychological Association that said that efforts to change sexual orientation are not only unlikely to be successful, but they involve a risk of harm. American Psychiatric Association basically says the same thing, that it potential risks of depression, anxiety, self-destructive behavior. Do you really think that kids should be subjected to that based on what maybe their parents want? From what I've read, uh, there's medical literature on both sides of the issue. This but is really, about, really not, about options. There's really not, it's not, it's really just not accurate to say that, you know, doctors are evenly divided. I, mean, I can give you a list. The American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Counseling Association, American Psychiatric Association, the American Psychological Association, American School Council Association, the National Association of School Psychologists, National Association of Social Workers. I mean, that's, they represent half a million mental health professionals. They all say this is not a mental disorder and it's not something that needs to be cured. This is Between Us. I'm John Totten. We just elected a vice president who was a big supporter of gay conversion therapy. So I thought it might be important for us to understand what that means. But simply put, gay conversion therapy is a therapy that attempts to quote-unquote fix a person's sexual orientation. It is almost always associated with Christian counseling or some kind of evangelical affiliation. It has been roundly rejected by most research and by most professional organizations as a treatment that, due to its inefficacy, is actually considered dangerous and is correlative with higher risk of suicide. Basically, if you're a patient who goes to someone to change your sexual orientation and they can't do it, you might come away from that experience believing there is even more wrong with you than you did before. Jonathan Merker is thankfully not one of those stories. As a teen, he tried to change his sexual orientation by engaging in an evangelical gay conversion support group and a Christian counselor. But he accidentally chose a Christian counselor who didn't care that he was gay. And it saved him from what could have been even more pain than he was already going through. Still though, his abusive experience in gay conversion therapy groups deterred his path to self-acceptance, a path that he is admittedly still on today. Why don't you tell me a little bit about what you you do for a job first? Sure. Um, well, I'll tell you a bit about the prog- progression that perhaps led me to be sitting sure. across from you too. And I was a mental health counselor in private practice and saw mostly gay men, um, mostly dealing with relational issues, some trauma, PTSD. And then my other specialty was bereavement, death and dying and loss. I ended up working for the nonprofit in Seattle that handles all the organ donation in this geographical area. I was working with um, the families of organ donors. So as their loved one dies in the hospital, I would be there supporting them, doing grief counseling. So I found that work really meaningful, really enjoyed um, that aspect of of caring for others. Um, and subsequently have moved into a more clinical role in organ donation, where now I assess patients who are dying in intensive care units to see if they have organ donation potential. I'm wondering if there is a... Uh 
an intersection between the work you're doing now and the work you were doing before in the gay community. Hmm. The only thought that comes to mind is um, working with clients who seroconverted while I was working with them, so became HIV positive. I found it super meaningful because a lot of gay guys, even with the cognitive knowledge about what medications are and what a life with HIV looks like and how it's a long, satisfying, fulfilling life where you won't be sick for most of the time or for any of the time, potentially now, even knowing that there's just this imminent, like, holy fuck, I'm going to die. And the reality is we're all going to die and we're all like, that's period. But when you get this illness that so many of our community have died early from the kind of death, like essentially it allowed me to work with people's death anxiety when they wouldn't have had it front and center prior. Mm -hmm. And I personally, obviously given what I do, feel like if you, if you have any semblance of death anxiety, the sooner you deal with it, the more you'll enjoy the rest of your life Mm -hmm. um, since you're headed towards death inevitably. I guess I'm curious about um, generational differences and how HIV is thought of and also generational differences in how therapy hmm. is con- is considered in the gay community. Well, I mean, this I mean, this makes for an interesting conversation too. The, the history of therapy among gay people can't be talked about without talking about the history of conversion therapy, which has now been uh, thankfully made illegal in some states. And so I, I haven't thought about this before your question, but I wonder how the idea that therapy was a place where gay men were trying to be made not who they are if that's affected previous gay perspectives on therapy, Hmm. it doesn't seem that way in as much as when it comes up among new friends or community that I'm a therapist, people generally have a kind of, Oh, that's great. I need to see a therapist or, Oh, I've been seeing my therapist for five years. It doesn't seem to be a lot of shame around it. Right. And maybe that's just because we all know we have a lot of shit to deal with because we've been oppressed and marginalized and have had complicated experiences. Can I ask about your own experience of conversion therapy? What I'll say, and I kinda, I'm still kind of making sense of this, is the gay conversion ministries I went to, because they were evangelical, Christian in nature, um, were based on a kind of you know, psychology that's been seriously discredited and disproved. But they still built, built their foundation of their approach and their support groups and the message they were teaching. Those conversion therapy programs are um, varied. There's lots of different experiences through them. And, and as I've met people and studied and read about them, mine is relatively benign. Some of the stories you hear make you just go, you know, your mouth hits the floor, your jaw hits the floor. Um, and mine wasn't like that. And I've always entered it like that. And only recently have I started to say, and even so, it was really fucked up. And I consider it traumatizing and abusive. So the way I ended up up in a ex-gay ministry was that when I went to college, I was part of an evangelical Christian group. I identified as an evangelical Christian. That's how I'd been raised, even though my parents subsequently left the faith. So I had, a, and so I had a mentor um, at my campus, and he was, you know, in his early thirties. He was a guy who worked for the um, the ministry. Amazing man. His name was John. Uh, super kind. Really got me. Really understood where I was coming from in every aspect of my life. Um, but was also supportive of me in this, you know, very Christian desire to not be gay, which is a feeling I'd had ever since I had my first gay feelings, which I recollect to be about the age of six. Um, and at one point during our time together, he brought me to a lecture or a speech by a guy at the ex-gay ministry that was uh, in a nearby city. You know, at the time, I really enjoyed the experience. It was really, really weird for me to be a bunch, be around a bunch of guys who were 
trying to not be gay. I, I had not shared that with a lot of people, but guys would come up to me after the talk and they were like, hey, it's nice to meet you. I'm, you know, Tony, Chris, whatever. And just to realize, oh, these guys are assuming that I'm trying to not be gay, which is true, was a very kind of <laughs> unsettling, but but intriguing feeling. It was like, oh, there's some community here. These people are going through a similar thing that I am. And I kind of found that appealing. And so that was all my freshman year of college. And then right at the beginning of my sophomore year of college, this my mentor, John, to whom I was very close, died very unexpectedly, very suddenly. Mm. And I was devastated. Mm-hmm. At that time in my life, I had a my theology was such that God was always speaking to you and you just had to kind of figure out what God was saying. And I was confused. I had thought that God was speaking to me by putting John in my life and kind of giving me a trajectory out of the sin of homosexuality. Um, And so all of a sudden when John was just not there anymore, I was like, well, what the fuck am I supposed to do? And so I called up the ex-gay group and was like, well, John supported me going there. I don't want to be gay. I know these, I can talk to these people about it. I don't know anyone else in my life that I really can go to about this right now or wanted to or whatever the case. So I called them up and they were like, yeah, come on up to our meeting. And, uh, and so I went to this group two and a half years. I went to the director of that group and said, hey, you know, do you have any therapist recommendations? And so the director gave me a couple cards and the guy ended up seeing, so he had a very psychodynamic, psycho-relational perspective, um, which I had never experienced before in therapy. I've been to been in quite a few different therapeutic settings and environments before where I was talked at a lot. Um, and so I'd never had therapy where we actually had a relationship and our conversations could be about that relationship or be about what was going on for me without any agenda. But this guy who would, and I saw him a couple of times, he would come up to our group to speak from time to time, was actually a pretty subversive badass in my retroactive perspective because he didn't actually believe the ex-gay stuff. He really was very pro-gay and very pro, uh, you know, living out the healthy manifestation of your sexual drives. Hmm. And so he would, you know, go to that group, put his card out and, and he was a Christian. He was, and he was actually an ordained pastor too, but just was very liberal and very not rigid and not conservative in his approach to Christianity. And so he kind of had this way of helping those of us who actually didn't want to be in that group or who found that group to be toxic and stifling as I grew to, um, to get out, which was incredible. And so my therapy portion of being in, you know, ex-gay conversion was that therapy really saved my fucking life, which Mm. I'm incredibly grateful for. I hear the argument from even good professional counselors as to why it would be ethical to work with someone to change their sexual orientation. It usually goes like this. If a client comes to me and they strongly desire that kind of change, who am I to tell them that they shouldn't desire it? It would only be ethical to work towards that change with them. Well, first of all, what I would say in response is that the American Psychological Association and the American Counseling Association and a whole lot of other professional associations disagree. The APA's bylaws require members to avoid misrepresenting the efficacy of sexual orientation change efforts by promoting or promising change in sexual orientation when providing assistance to individuals distressed by their own or other sexual orientation. 
So even if you consider it ethical to take on this impossible task with a client, you have to let them know up front that there is no trustworthy evidence suggesting that this change is possible. And you also have to let them know that the good things that can come from this kind of therapy are also good things that might come from any kind of therapy. So for example, if meeting with a counselor who is helping you with your sexual orientation every week helps you with your depression, you could also get help with your depression from another kind of therapy. And throughout the history of psychoanalysis, this has largely been the consensus. Even going back to Sigmund Freud, who famously wrote to a mother who asked him to help with her gay son. And I'm not going to do a Sigmund Freud voice. I gather from your letter that your son is a homosexual. I am most impressed by the fact that you do not mention this term yourself in your information about him. May I question you why you avoid it? Homosexuality is assuredly no advantage, but it is nothing to be ashamed of. No vice, no degradation. It cannot be classified as an illness. We consider it to be a variation of the sexual function, produced by a certain arrest of sexual development. Many highly respectable individuals of ancient and modern times have been homosexuals, several of the greatest men among them. It is a great injustice to persecute homosexuality as a crime, and a cruelty too. By asking me if I can help your son, you mean, I suppose, if I can abolish homosexuality and make normal heterosexuality take its place. The answer is, in a general way, that we cannot promise to achieve it. What analysis can do for your son runs in a different line. If he is unhappy, neurotic, torn by conflict, inhibited in his social life, analysis may bring him harmony, peace of mind, full efficiency, whether he remains homosexual or gets changed. So let me kind of just briefly lay out what the philosophy of conversion therapy, conversion ministries were. Um, so I'll give you some context as to what was going on in my experience and for all of us. They, they basically had this really faulty psychological idea that uh, homosexual desire comes from uh, a real or, perce- real or perceived absence of a parental figure. And initially it was like, oh, if you're a boy, it's because you didn't connect to your father. If it's a girl, you didn't connect to your mother. They subsequently expanded that and said it could be any either parent because if you have if you're a boy and you have a fucked up relationship with your mother well then you won't be attracted to women so they kind of kept grasping for straws um these theories have been widely debunked because the (laughs) complex family makeup of all people has no correlation to people's sexual orientation identity I don't want to say whatsoever because there's always complexities in all of our identities and our development, but clearly people are not gay because their father was distant or in jail or a dick. Um, if not, we'd have a very, very queer world, which would be awesome. I actually wish they were right. I'd like there'd be a lot more musical theater, which would make me very happy. So that's like the, like the skeletons and kind of nuts and bolts of it is everyone has this kind of wound of a, of a parental issue. After that, everything kind of just snowballs and you, you, know, you feel like you don't fit in with the boys. If you're a boy, you're not 
part of the girls if you're a girl. And so and so as you like continue to make decisions or continue to you know not feel like you're part of the group, that further alienates your psychology and makes you desire sexually your own gender more. And then the other big, big thing that they push all the time is sexual trauma. For them, sexual trauma is an indicator, uh, is one of the roots of you being homosexual, gay or lesbian or, or queer or trans, certainly. It just seems really reductionist. It's very reductionist. I remember going to therapy and feeling like there's so much in my life and just being so overwhelmed by the complexities that we would talk about in regards to my life. And then going to the ministry and feeling so simplified and so basic and that not being congruent with my experience at my therapist's office at all. The other thing I should mention is that I had been reading this kind of ex-gay literature since I was about 16. A youth pastor had given me a book that I had asked for. Uh, yeah, and I, I found some stuff on the internet too, actually. Not porn, ex-gay stuff. Porn would have been better. So I was very familiar with all this faux psychology and with these... Um, Beliefs. So when I was one of the co-leaders of a small group, I was also teaching guys this, which I still I would now as I say it to you and say it publicly for others to hear, have a little bit of uh, shame around because it's, it's so violent and it's so damaging. And it's hard to talk about clearly as I just sat here for a second trying to figure out how to put words to it. Um, There's a huh. There is a, I think No, I'm just going to say uh there's a fragility that I know in myself and have heard and or experienced from other gay men around our sexuality. Um that comes from just being a, you know, a smaller minority population that isn't part of the majority and has been oppressed for years and years. Um, there's something about the way that these conversion ministries and therapies play on that cultural milieu where we already feel like, oh shit, I'm a little different. Is this right or wrong? It kind of, it grabs that belief that I, I think, I want to say all, but I'll just say most gay, gay men. And I'll speak about gay men because that's mostly my experience. Um, have and so the think about it this way you know you're you're walking into a space and essentially saying here's my sexuality do what you will with it um, and so without ever having the act of sex you're giving the entire foundation of your sexual identity over to others um, and then what they do with it is is they call it flawed for reasons that at the time sound really good on paper. It's very cathartic and soothing to hear that there are reasons for you feeling a certain way, especially when you've been feeling like you shouldn't feel that way your whole life. And so when you're given something concrete, it's it's cathartic and you and you want you want it and you want to trust the people that are giving it to you because it feels like an like a solution. I haven't met a gay man who hasn't admitted to me that at some point in his life they've had to grieve, you know, their their fantasy of a heterosexual life where they have kids and a, you know, white picket American dream situation. Um, I, I think all gay men have to, to some degree, reconcile that, oh, I'm not going to have 
what it looks like, what I was told as a child it was supposed to look like. Um, except if you go to an ex-gay ministry, you kind of get, oh yeah, you can have that. And not only can you, you should, and here's why. The perspective on the gay community and the perspective on gay sex and gay life is incredibly vile uh, among conversion therapy and conversion ministries. Being gay was at one point in the DSM as a mental health disorder, but it was removed 43 years ago. And I think that is due to the understanding that culture matters when determining what is mentally ill and what is mentally healthy. And so through research and education, our culture evolved long ago to understand that what is considered normative sexual behavior is a far wider umbrella than we thought 50 years ago. And that goes for all of us, regardless of orientation. When I encounter a gay person who does not want to be gay, I do not assume that either of us knows what is best for that person. But I do get curious about the desire to be straight. And in my experience, it almost always comes from culture. The client almost always says, I just wish I was normal. Again, culture tells us what is normal. The superego, or the part of the psyche that tells this person what they should be, is raging. And so from a Freudian perspective, that is the conflict we are given to work with. The conflict between the superego and the ego, or the id. For our gay clients, we can call this internalized homophobia, or the homophobia that the client has picked up from mom or dad, or Sunday school, or society, and directed towards the self. How much of that is the so-called ex-gay ministers and their own projected internalized homophobia? Oh, it's, I mean, it's entirely that. And it's, an, and it's, and it's the homophobia of the church. Like ex-gay ministries were essentially created by straight white pastors who needed a solution for all these evangelical parents. At first, the initial answer was like, kick them out of the fucking house. I mean, that was what focus on the family was saying to parents, tough love. Your kid says they're gay, um, tell them to not be gay or pull all financial support, kick them out of the house. And so gay kids ended up on the street. So then the, the straight evangelicals figure out, well, this isn't working because we're just sending kids out in droves and parents are upset at us because parents want relationships with their kids. And this mm-hmm. is too black and white. They found gay people who wanted to not be gay from because of their own religious upbringing. So it was all these folks coming together to say, oh, let's, let's provide a solution that doesn't get kicked, kicked out on the street. Let's just convert them to, you know, to not have those gay feelings. Because clearly, since being gay is a sin, all sin can be overcome. So all we have to do is figure out the particularities of this sin and we'll be able to help tons of people. The natural progression for that to happen was to have people who were gay say, well, I don't want to be gay, so I'm not gay anymore. And I am not gay anymore because of God, because I gave it to God. Um, and I can lead this ministry. And so a lot of the leaders of these ministries and of the and the therapists, too, were people who were gay or lesbian or queer in some way or another. Sure. So basically, they played on a cultural fear that all of us had, um, all of us gay kids had, and offered this solution that felt so good. The price of the solution is that you hand your sexuality over to someone else and let them tell you 
about it and make decisions about it for you. Um, and so at these XK ministries, you know, there's always a time where you come and you can you can confess if you fucked up. And so people would come to our group every week and you you would know that they were going to say something at that time because their head would be low. They'd feel sad. And then they'd confess some sexual sin, usually something to the point, you know, to the effect of masturbating or looking at pornography, occasionally having sex with someone else. And as a spectator to these confessions, were you titillated? Oh yeah. yeah they, they tried to be controlling around it. And sometimes Sometimes that worked, but you but then that just leaves more to your imagination. Well, and then the other thing that I want to, you know, hark on is their perspective on the gay community was so warped and so cruel. And a lot of the a lot of the gay men in that group, after having left, I realized, boy, these guys they weren't unhappy being gay. They were just making lots of bad choices and didn't have a lot of psychological resources to make good choices. When you say bad choices, you mean like unhealthy or unwise sexual choices? Yeah. Or use, or using lots of drugs. That's primarily what I mean. Or yeah. Or making bad choices, becoming, you know, seroconverting, becoming HIV positive, feeling a lot of shame about your conversion and diagnosis and going, Oh, I fucked up. I shouldn't have been having sex with other men. And now that I did it, I'm being punished because God wants to call me back. Like, right. If you have that, if you were raised as an evangelical where God punishes you to bring you back into his fold, you go out and party for 10 years, use a lot of drugs and get HIV. And and then someone says to you, Oh, you got HIV because God wants you back. It kind of makes sense. Logically, it's awful. And it doesn't make sense realistically, but it works for getting people into those spaces. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I often, Towards the end, when I was leaving on my way out of the group, I thought, I think most of these people just need therapy just because they're people who are hurting like most of us do. And most of us can benefit from having someone talk to us and share our hard experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a thing I think a lot of people there would use sex pathologically. So use sex to to, um, regulate their emotional affect, which... People do, and it can be problematic if you do it. Um, you can make bad de- bad decisions if you're doing it, and so if you are, that's fine. It's treatable, and you can still have a healthy relationship with your sexuality and your sexual partners, whatever gender they may be. Clearly, um, but that was a, that's a great way these groups got people in, and so they. For me, it's clear that there was preying on a lot of weakness, preying on cultural oppression, um, to bring folks in, and I very much feel that. For myself as well, I was terrified of sexuality because my whole life, you know, sex was so bad as an evangelical. Masturbating was so bad. The fact that I would masturbate thinking about men was, you know, this exponential shame that I couldn't get out of myself. This shame shows up in a particular way in the LGBTQ community, but it is not limited to non-heteronormative individuals. One of the most common inquiries I hear in my work with men is, can you help me with my pornography addiction? And when I ask, how often do you use pornography? I regularly hear the response, once a week or once a month. And I have to say to these folks, if your only objective is to not desire sexual activity once a week or once a month, I can probably not help you. The shame that we all take on in regards to our sexual desire is ubiquitous. And the problem with pathologizing our desire is that it is inhuman to do so. All of human history and all of science tells us that sexual desire and all its infinite variations that take place between consenting adults are just that, variations on natural and non-harmful behaviors. 
So as counselors, we cannot ask ourselves, how do I stop this person's desire from manifesting? But we must ask, where does this shame come from? And is the source of that shame something to be skeptical of? Gay conversion therapy and a culture that supports it is something to be skeptical of. And so sex was like a curse for you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so for, for a group of people to say, oh, your sexuality won't be a curse anymore, and you still get everything in your life you have now, that was so appealing. Cause, you just have to be someone that you're not. Yeah. Personally, it's what I wanted because I grew up in that evangelical fold and had access to ex-gay literature as a kid. So rather than breaking out and saying, actually, I'm gay, I was able to say, oh, I can just follow these steps and deal with this psychological ways I was hurt and I'll be okay. Here's the kicker. Um, I was never sexually abused and I would spend copious amounts of time trying to remember a memory I had hidden away or locked away or blacked out on of sexual abuse because that would make a little more sense because my father and I have a great relationship. He's a great guy. We had our problems as any child does with their parent, but we really worked through them and came out on the other side. He's a decent person capable of self-reflection and conversation, right? So I would describe my father to people at the ex-gay group and they'd be like, huh, he sounds great. And then they'd describe their fathers who would beat them and throw them down the stairs and say, this is why I'm gay. And I kind of go, huh, well then why am I gay? When I finally admitted that to my therapist, he was kind of like, oh, no, you weren't, you weren't abused. It's, if you don't remember it, it's not there. And that, like, that freedom of like, but then, well, my dad isn't that, my dad wasn't violent or abusive to me. And he's like, no, he, he's got his problems, but nope. And I remember saying to him, like, so why then? But actually, it was around that time when I said why to him that I had this idea of, well, wait, then maybe God doesn't want me to not be gay. Because all I've really heard is that everyone else doesn't want me to, but I haven't necessarily, I'm not sure that I had felt that in my being, that that's what God wanted. At that time, I had a sense that there, I mean, I'm an atheist now, but at this other time, I believe that there was a God who was leading me certain ways. And I didn't know for sure what God actually wanted. All I'd known was that I had been scared, had found something that alleviated my fear. But then that place that alleviated my fear became just so toxic and so complicated for me. Can you imagine like if you looked at pornography and jerked off on Thursday, knowing all weekend Tuesday's coming and I have to go tell all these people what I did. Not that they would necessarily be unkind towards you for it because they'd be supportive and say, oh, we're going to share, you know, you share, we're going to pray for you and blah, blah, blah. But like other people had have access to my sexuality and to what I do. That was, that's the, the price for being there is you have to be honest. And if you want to get better, you have to be, you have to share everything that happens, which means every sexual experience I had, whether it was like being flirted with by a guy at the gym or jerking off or even just like having a gay thought on my own, if I didn't share it, I would feel like, well, then I secretly must want to be gay and secretly I must not be honoring God and not honoring whatever, myself, my peers, who knows. And so I, I gave these people unrestrained access to my sexual experiences, my sexual thoughts. It's, it's complicated to talk about it because I feel like these are all, everyone at that group, including the leader, was, was gay or lesbian. But we were all just so fucking broken trying to help each other. We all just had so much sexual harm and confusion. No one there ever would say to us things like, your sexuality is a gift or, or you're okay or 
It's natural to fantasize. It's natural to masturbate. It's not bad. It's weird. It just it feels to me like a group of people trying to cl climb out of a hole together, but the only way they know how to climb out is to step on each other because that's all they've ever experienced is, is that kind of violence. The actual reason I ended up leaving was, so it was like two and a half years in, two years in, and one of the guys had gotten married to one of the women in our group, mm -hmm. both of whom were very gay. I remember kind of thinking like, oh, that could be me someday. Like maybe I'll meet a woman here and that way she'll understand my perspective. And it took him about six months before they actually had intercourse. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking like, huh, my like Christian fantasy of my life has always been that I'm going to save myself until marriage and then have like amazing sex my wedding night, which I've subsequently learned doesn't happen for most evangelical couples. That was my fantasy at the time. And then realizing, wait a second, that sucks. I don't want to marry someone and not have intercourse for six months because I can't but the reality is I knew I didn't get erections when I thought about women mm. and so I could very easily see myself in that situation and so I went back to this uh, uh, therapist as I mentioned and said so this is a thing and he was like yeah that's probably what you can expect if you marry a woman so, you know this is what your life will look like and he said it in such a way he didn't care if I did that or not. He was just like oh yeah that's an option you have if you want to keep pursuing the ex-gay world you'll probably marry a woman and sex will probably be be difficult for you and not very pleasant. And it, just as a matter of fact way, yeah. as in like, this is what you can expect for the rest of your life, that sex is not going to be exciting. Yeah. And I think that was um, probably the moment where I took my sexuality back into my own hands and said, oh, well, I actually don't want that. And that was it. He was just being honest with what he saw of me. And, he, and, and when I said to him, like, so what if I was gay and could I be gay and a Christian? And he was like, yeah, of course, there's tons. You had these really bipolar experiences between the support groups that you were going to and your therapy sessions. Yeah, it was night and day. I remember actually once when I, during the time I was seeing him, he was coming to speak at our group and I was so excited that he was coming. To, I mean, and I thought at the time it was kind of like, I can show off Tom, he's so great. And, um, but I think now that I reflect on it, what he shared that night was so kind of, it really pushed the boundary. And I remember our um, director afterwards said, I don't think we should invite him back anymore. And I remember being a little defensive and being like, no, but it, it, he was helping people like, I actually, I don't, I wouldn't have used the word agency, but what did I say? It was something to the effect of, um, he's empowering us to, to make good choices in our lives. But that sounds like a bad word to them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> huh. But it, but it was great for me. What has that process of healing uh, from that trauma, even as you have done your own work with clients who have experienced similar situations, what has that been like and where are you at today in that process? Yeah. What I offer my clients, which I now realize I was also offering myself at those times, um, was anger and letting them know it was okay to be angry at these experiences that have happened to us. And I'm still, I'm still very angry at this experience, I'm still very angry. Um, and so I would often offer my anger to eventually move us towards the sheer amount of pain, the, the amount of pain that someone else having ownership of your sexuality creates. I had a conversation with a guy recently who is struggling with crystal meth use and maybe addiction. And he said to me, um, I just thought this was so profound. He's like, I feel like being gay, it's just, it's a shit show from the get-go. Like, your sexuality is already hard. 
And the, he said to me, the appeal of crystal meth is if I, if I smoke it, all of a sudden sex becomes easy. And it's never been easy my whole life. Mm. And that, to me, makes so much sense. Um, sexuality has been hard my whole life. Um, and it was, it was made harder by a group that said it was going to make it better. Yeah, if I'm being honest, it still hurts. And it's a long time ago. I don't, I don't want it to still hurt the way it does. I think it will always hurt. I will always grieve the cost of being in those places. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, when I first came out of it, I kind of would say things like, but I didn't end up using drugs and I, like, got a master's degree, so my life is okay. And now I just see, oh, man, there are so many ways that I could have had a healthy lifestyle that didn't require me sacrificing uh, my sexuality to these wolves who needed to be okay for their own fragile yeah. uh, religious beliefs. Yeah. This has been Between Us. I'm John Totten. Between Us is produced by myself and Mason Neely, who also composed our music. As usual, find us on social media. Let us know your feedback. Find us on iTunes and subscribe. And in the meantime, take care. Take care.